You have your Bibles? If you turn with me to Psalm 95. If you turn there, I just want to kind of give some context to the general theme of what's going on here. In, a, in about a week, matter of fact, in less than a week, people everywhere will be excited about worship. Worship leaders will be cranking up the music and inviting worshipers to throw their whole selves in excitement about the worship event. And how do they get people engaged about the worship event? By inviting them to lose themselves and enjoying the game. Now, some of you love football. I do. Some of you hate football. But regardless of whether you hate it or love it, you have to admit it really is about worship. Do you get excited about the worship of the Lord in a like fashion that you do about college football or maybe even in Dallas pro football or a big name concert or a shopping trip? What in life really gets you excited? What in life motivates you to, as it were, worship? Um, sometimes we struggle to worship the Lord in truth. And if you struggle in this, God invites you into enjoyment and worship through Psalm 95. So let us stand as we read Psalm 95. This is God's word. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of our God. Amen. You may be seated. So we all worship, and the question is, what do we worship? Years ago, there was a, a modern-day philosopher named David Foster Wallace, and he was giving a, a college com, uh, commencement address um, at a prestigious university, and he talked about uh, this reality of worship. Um, this guy, David Foster Wallace, was not a believer, but he says some really profound things about worship that I think... Uh, true of us, but also true of our culture. He said this, everything in my own experience, immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and most important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. You see, there's no experience you've had where you weren't at the absolute center of the experience. However, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, we realize the reality there is no such thing as actual thing as atheism. 
There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, and he's being completely generic about this, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap into real meaning of life to, then you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing itself, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. At one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, etc. The trick is keeping the truth in front of us daily. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll never need more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll always end up feeling stupid as a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. What's David Foster Wallace getting at? He's getting at this reality that we're all worshipers. And at the center of our worship, it's usually us at the center because that's the center of our experience. Um, You may not talk out loud to yourself, but you're talking to yourself all day long about yourself and about reality. And we tend to put ourselves at the center of worship. Yet because of this reality that he says everybody intuitively knows, Um, God knows this about us as well. He knows that we're weak and fragile and frail and that we are distracted in worship. And so he gives us calls to worship. That's what we experience every Sunday when you come to worship. And this morning we give a profound call to worship that you've done, I'm sure, lots of times in this church through Psalm 95. And it starts out with a wonderful invitation to worship. We see actually two invitations to worship here in this passage we see it in verses 1 and 2. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. What's He doing here? What's He calling us into? He's calling us to be captured with the Lord so much that we erupt in song. And so every morning in worship, you come and you start singing songs. Why do you sing songs? It's the same reason why at college football games next week, they're going to be like singing songs. And, and if you're in Louisiana, which I live in Shreveport, uh, every, and I'm, but I'm not an LSU fan by nature, okay, by, by, ra- by being raised. But they have all these songs and they start playing them when people walk in and they get really, really excited about the team. And in comparison to God, it's just utterly ridiculous that we get so excited about a, a, a group of 18 to 20 year old. 22 year olds but the truth is is frequently we get more excited about this group of 18 to 22 year olds than we do about the lord who's the maker and creator and ruler of everything who's good and his goodness applies to us deeply but the reality is is that we've been made for praise and that songs frequently get us there augustine as he was reflecting on this psalm he said this for what ought a man to praise more than that which pleases him deeply and so frequently, the things that you get excited about in terms of the songs that prompt you to excitement or the, the things that lead you to sing, if you're a singer, are the things that you enjoy the most. And that's why God calls us, as Augustine says, to a great banquet of joy, not one of this world, but in the Lord. 
Now, I know some of you aren't singers, but there's some of you, many of you who sing, and, uh, and some of you sing up here, but some, most of you, many of you sing in the car. I know you do. I've seen you. Just kidding. I haven't seen you, but, but I know that many of you do. And the, many of the songs that we sing in the car are complete nonsense. Yet there's something right and joy-inducing about wanting to belt out a song in the car. Um, a few weeks ago, I was asking, my, I was preparing this, and I was asking my wife, uh, I know you used to sing um, songs uh, by Peter Cetera all the time. What was the song you really got into? And uh, she said, uh, it was, You're My Inspiration. And you know that song, probably if you're, if you're my age or older. It's about uh, this, uh, they're singing about how this one dude is the, the girl's inspiration for life. And just how ridiculous is that, that, that the, the inspiration for life is a dude. Like, I mean, I understand that if you're 18 or maybe younger, but by the time you're, you're my age, like, it's a little bit ridiculous that that would be your inspiration for life. That's where all of life is found. But, but it is not ridiculous to think that we would have that same sense of wonder and desire to sing about the creator and king of the world who's come to rescue us contrary to everything we deserve. And that's what he's calling us into. He's calling us to be singing and to make joyful noise, come with thanksgiving, songs of praise. He gives us this second invitation a little bit later. In verse 6 and 7, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He calls us to be casting ourselves on our face before His feet, confessing that He is the King and ruler of the world. He's the only one really deserving of our praise. And so we see this picture where God's calling us to worship Him. And not out of a sense of like, hey, I'm calling you to experience something miserable and to get excited anyway. He's calling you to be captured with the most enthralling thing there is in the whole world that is God Himself. And yet we struggle with this. Now some of you, if you're new to the faith, you may struggle with this reality even that God would call us into His worship. And if you feel that way, that it seems a little pompous that God would call us into His worship, you have a good compadre, a good friend in C.S. Lewis, who when he was a relatively new believer struggled with a similar thing. He says this in reflecting on, on, on this idea, We all despise the man who can, demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delight. And so, uh, and you, you've seen people who, uh, please tell me I'm beautiful. Or please tell me how great I am if I have money or power. And it's all ridiculous. And Lewis was looking at uh, God's call to worship as a similar thing. Like, God, if he's so great, why does he care if we worship him or not? Uh, thus, it, it, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible but came to me, both of God and his worshipers, Lewis says, because it's, it'd be kind of ridiculous that we would be captured in this like fanfare where God's caught up in getting praise for himself. But then in reflecting on it, he said this, but then the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely had escaped me. I thought of it primarily in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor, but I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. 
You see, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Football fans praising their favorite football teams, as it were. And so what's his point here? His point is that praise is more than express enjoyment. It actually completes the enjoyment as it is its appointed consummation. It's the very way that we find the deepest enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling themselves, one another, how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. And so then Lewis says this, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is actually inviting us to enjoy Him. At the heart of what God's getting at here is He's saying, there's a call in your life to be captured with me. When we come together for worship, we should be calling each other and saying, hey, let us sing and worship and be thankful and bow down. But the reason God is about this is not primarily even for His own praise. I need compliments. It's primarily because He's warning you and me to enjoy Him, to experience Him, to commune with Him. As Lewis said, in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. And so we see this wonderful invitation that He gives us in worship and call to worship through this call to worship here in Psalm 95. But it doesn't just stop there. He goes on in in verses 7 and following to give us a warning or confrontation regarding worship. This call to worship is somewhat dangerous, he says. And I'm I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit long. You know, usually when we're doing calls to worship with Psalm 95, we usually do verses 1 through 7. We leave this part out because it's a little bit weighty. But he says this, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, even though they'd seen my work. What's he talking about there? He's saying, today, if you hear me calling you to worship, if you have tasted any of my goodness, don't be like those in Exodus where they experienced me face to face and then forgot about me and went their own way. Now, I don't, I'm not just going to completely unpack everything, but, but you, you know the story of Exodus, right? How God had called a people for himself through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And they, they, they'd become a mass of people in Egypt because through Joseph being there and caring for his family... And yet, over time, the Pharaoh forgot about Joseph and began to enslave and and put terrible things onto God's people there in Egypt. So that Pharaoh rose up and was uh, very harsh with them. And so what did God do? They cried out for help and he sent Moses. And Moses was like, I'm not the God. This is a bad idea. I can't speak and I'm not powerful. And by the way, Pharaoh is really powerful and he's not going to listen to me. And so God said, hey, I'm sending you anyway. And so he sent Moses and some crazy things started happening. Ten radical plagues that got the attention of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh in Egypt is like America in, 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 in the present, like the most powerful nation in the world, most powerful person in the world. And Moses is like you or me. He's just, he's just a nobody, really. But, but he sends him and he does these ten plagues 
And the final one is a terrible one. The firstborn throughout the whole region dies. And so imagine our country, that every single firstborn in our country dying. That would take me out. Take a lot of you out. Take a lot of your kids out. And there would be great grieving and mourning. It would, it would cripple us. And so Pharaoh saw this and he's like, you're going to have to get out of here. By the way, the, the Israelite kids didn't die because the Passover, blood over the, the uh, lentil or whatever. And so he sent them out and said, get out of here. I don't want to see your face anymore. Get out. And so they start hightailing it out. But then after about a day, Pharaoh thinks about what he's done. He's like, I just gave away all our free labor. I can't let this happen. So he goes chasing after them. They make it to the Red Sea. And they're like, uh-oh, how are we going to get through the Red Sea? God splits the Red Sea, dry land. They start crossing over. And then all of a sudden, they realize Pharaoh's army's after them. The chariots, they hear them. All, all the, the thundering of the horses. They know what's going on. And they know they're in trouble because, remember, they don't have implements to fight like Pharaoh's army does. And so they make it to the other side. Pharaoh's army is also in this Red Sea in the dry land coming across. And they're like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And then God just wipes away Pharaoh's army by causing the Red Sea to fall on them and them to all die. And they start singing songs on the other side of the Red Sea. But then the, the point of this passage is this. They experience God in a very, very, like, upfront way, a way that we all kind of wish for at times. So in fact, many of us think, if I could just see God like face to face, if I could see him act like he did with Jesus or with, with Pharaoh or the Israelites in the wilderness, man, I, I would never forget. Like, how could you forget that kind of stuff? But his point is, that's the whole point here, that the people forgot and so now they just had barely made it out when they start complaining about the water that it's bitter. And so God fixes the water. Then they complain they're hungry and, and God gives them quail and manna, which is totally crazy stuff. And then they complain again about water. And God's like, you're really starting to test me. This was at Meribah and Massah. And so and after a while, people started dying. But, but they, they experienced the very face of God, the very presence of God, the very work of God, but then they forgot. And that's his whole point. For, and then he says this, For 40 years I loathed that generation. I said they are people who go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And God's whole point is this, when I call you into worship, when you hear my goodness about my graciousness, the call to Come to me, respond to me is the primary thing in life. Don't harden your heart. Don't, don't close your ears. Respond with whole hearts. Because if you don't, you'll be like those people who experienced me in the wilderness, like face to face. They saw it all and they forgot. So that they became loathsome to me and they didn't enter into my rest. It's a terrible thing to forget God in that way. And yet we all have a tendency to do that. We all have a tendency on Monday or in the week to be captured with all kind of other things, sports on Saturdays, as it were, and to forget God. Some of you, maybe if you're outside the faith, are like, man, I love the, the whole Jesus thing and the goodness of God thing, the promises of God thing, but like this, this threat, these, these warnings, these, these dangers about not worshiping Him, I'm, I'm not so good about that. But here's what Augustine said about this, this verse. He said, by himself, that is, 
by God himself. God confirms his promises, and yet by himself, God also confirms his threats. Let no man say in his heart, his promise is true, but his threat is false. As his promise is true, so are his threats also sure. You ought to be equally assured of rest, happiness, eternity, and immortality if you live in light of his commandments as of destruction, burning of eternal fire, damnation with the devil, if you despise his commandments. What's he saying here? We'd be really foolish to take the promises of God, which we frequently do. Uh, God's going to take care of me. I have great plans for you, God says. But then to ignore the warnings. If you, if you hear my voice and you harden your heart, terrible things are going to happen. It'd be foolish. Because the real God, the God you and I have to deal with, the God who is the creator of the universe that made us, that made everything around us, is both the one who gives the promises and the threats. And the reason he gives the threats is not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. If I, if I see a kid running in the street, I may tell them, hey, get out of the street, you're going to get hurt. But if it's my own kid, I'm going to go tackle them. And if you saw it in the street, you might think I hate my kid. I don't. I'm trying to save my kid. If it's a stranger's kid, I'm not going to tackle them. Why? Because I, I may love them and care for them. I don't love them like my own kid. God warns those he loves and hoping that we'll respond. He's, given you, he's brought you here today and is saying this in your presence because he doesn't want you to harden your heart, but he wants to bless you by having you respond to him. So what does it look like to, today to hear his voice and then harden your hearts? It looks like going through the motions without engaging your whole being and responding to the Lord. It looks like hearing about God and His greatness, having Him personally invite us into His worship, into enjoying Him, then going on and living a life that's all about living for ourselves. It's like showing up to worship and then hardly thinking about or engaging with God the rest of the week. If that's where you are, and truth be told, to one degree or another, that's where nearly all of us are, then how are you going to change? Is there any hope for you? And the good news is, is there is hope for you. If you screwed up, well, this whole psalm is about God calling you anew to enjoy Him. It's a call to worship. It's saying, hey, if you forgot about me and screwed it up again, which you're going to do frequently, I'm calling you anew. Respond again. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Now, a couple months ago, I was in Birmingham, and I was driving on their 280, which is a little bit like our 635, only with uh, stoplights frequently on it. And so I got on the 280 and there was a stoplight and I stopped there and there were hundreds of cars around me. And the guy just beside me just starts cursing very, very loudly, screaming as it were. He was obviously mad about something. Who knows what he was mad about? I thought initially he was mad at me. And I was looking over to him. I was wanting to roll down my window and scream at him, what's wrong with you? And then I thought, if I do that, then I need to ask myself that same question, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? You might get hurt. Okay, but I have no idea what he was doing. It's probably an Oregon car in front of him. He didn't like, but he, he perceived him to be liberal or something like that. It was so nuts. But, but as crazy as that guy was, we're even crazier if we hear God inviting us to worship him and don't respond. But far too often, that's exactly what we do. And so if you 
if you've fallen in this trap, how are you going to change? And so just a few points of uh, what does it look like for worship to transform because of the call to worship. And, and the fundamental thing is, is found um, throughout this passage. It's found in verses 3 through 5 where God reveals Himself to us. Why should we come with singing? It's verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. If you want a, another thing to meditate on or reflect on, Isaiah 40 is really a profound, helpful meditation along these lines. And it basically says this, the very things that we get most excited about on this earth, the, the people, the rulers, etc., they're like grasshoppers to God. They're nothing. The very countries and nations that we think, man, that's impressive. We should fear them. We should honor them. They're like nothing before God. God can raise them up and put them out as quickly as He wants. But for God Himself, He is great. He's the greatest of all there is. It says, it uses a phrase, a great king above all gods. What's it talking about above all gods? There are a lot of things that people worship, but there's nothing that people worship that's anywhere near what the true king, God Himself, is like. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. He, he controls every single thing that happens at some level or another. Now, that's a, at some level, that's a perplexing, scary reality, but it's true. And the sea is His, for He made it. His hands form the dry land. The, everything in the sea belongs to Him because He made it. Guess what else God made? Every single thing that is, you and me, we all belong to Him. He is worthy of our worship. And it's by seeing Him, it's by being captured by His greatness and His goodness and, and the fact that He rules and reigns and has everything, everything belongs to Him, that we should be prompted to worship Him. It continues in verse 7. Why else should we worship Him? For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Not only do we worship Him because He's great, but we worship Him because He has, out of His grace, made us His. And He's made us His a great cost to himself. For one, we see the patience that he has as with the Israelites. But when we see God, it should prompt us to worship. The thing that will move you to be responsive to worship is not just you saying, hey, I'm good enough and smart enough and by golly, I should be getting this. Instead, it should be, oh my goodness, look at the greatness of God. How can I ignore his greatness? It's like an ocean of enjoyment he's inviting me into. But we don't exactly know who wrote this psalm, Psalm 95, but we have a reason to praise God that goes far beyond anything that he had. Y'all know what that is? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, like, they had the experience of God in the Exodus, pretty remarkable. They had the experience of God in their own daily lives, which we have. But they had no clue about Jesus. What did, why should Jesus prompt you to worship? Well, like you and I deserve to be rejected by God. Everything in our life, is, as David Foster Wallace said, we, we've made it all about us. We've hijacked, God created us to live for him. We've hijacked it to make it all about us. And we deserve him to reject us and show his wrath to us. But instead, what did he do? He sent his own son, Jesus, to live for us, to live the perfect life on, on our behalf. So he intercedes for us in that way. And then, on, then he lived such a beautiful life. What do they do to him at the end of his life? 
that killed him. And yet the Scriptures tell us that not only were the Jews and the Romans killing Jesus, but actually it was God's plan to kill Jesus, for Him to be crushed. Also, we could be forgiven. For on the cross, it tells us that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so we could be forgiven. God took the punishment we deserve. Also, we can enjoy the favor He deserves. And He rose again so that one day He's going to raise all of us to new to life. And if, if, when you get that, it should move you to praise. Now, I'm usually nervous about doing this, but I'm going to read for you a little section from another person's sermon. Um, it's called My King by S.M. Lockridge. He's no longer with us, but his sermon's worth thinking about as we're thinking about who God's calling us to worship. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven, and he's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. By no means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of the world, this world. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And I wonder this morning, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway to deliverance, the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But you see, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. And you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. And they thought they could stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king. That's our king. That's the king. That's who we worship. Now, here's the crazy thing about it. What I just read is like a small piece of who he actually is. We could go on and on. But when we see who he is, and we see who he is, especially the person the work of Jesus, it should prompt us to respond to him in worship. Now, two other points, just real briefly. 
The whole point of worship is to get us beyond church services so that we'll worship with the whole of our lives. How sad would it be if, if the entirety of our worship was only seen Sunday mornings? But, but I, having said that, there is a real importance to Sunday morning worship. As a matter of fact, that's kind of the whole point of the passage. Because we need God to continually call us to himself to remind us about worship. When you come on Sunday morning, worship really is about expression. I can't wait to praise God. But more than being about self-expression, about enjoying and praising God, it's about formation. Training us and reminding us who we are, whose we are, and what we're here for, to worship the Lord. As C.S. Lewis said, the duty of worship exists for the delight of worship. And then finally, how do we move from duty to delight? There's a powerful uh, hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience by the name William Cooper. And he wrote this, Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. In other words, I was trying to, to get a life that would please God by being good. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. When I realized that, that God has loved me, contrary to everything I deserve, now I respond to Him freely. What shall I do was the word then, that I may grow worthier. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the, and here's the kicker, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Here's the whole point. When we see Jesus, we start realizing it's not about me performing for God. It's about God loving me and pursuing me and me just responding to him. And when you realize how great the great lengths that God went to rescue you, it will move you to worship. So in conclusion, next week you're going to see worship. At LSU, if you've never been there, Tiger Stadium is phenomenal. I don't mean to just give you an advertisement to worship for idols, but you, you should go. I went about eight to nine years ago for the first time. I'm an Ole Miss fan by nature. I grew up in Mississippi. And I was a little bit nervous because my friends who are LSU fans were inviting me. And so I cheered quietly for Ole Miss. They ended up losing, which is probably good for my health. Um, but I saw on that day worship like I'd never seen before. And I started thinking, how do these people get these people to worship like this? And then I found out that they, that they basically are threatening their students by knives and killing them. That if they don't show up to the games, they're going to kill them. No, that's not what they do. That's not how it works. They said there's this thing called football at Tiger Stadium, and you would be a fool to miss it. It's, where, it's the biggest thing of life that happens on our campus. And if, if you don't want to go, please stay away. There are plenty of people who would take your place, but you don't want to miss it. And so every week that they have a games, people fill the stadium and they fill it with worship and songs and enjoyment and joy. It's Cajun joy. It's pretty interesting. But we have something so much greater to worship than LSU football. We have so much, something so much greater than worship than Ole Miss football especially, or Dallas Cowboy football especially. We have the King of kings and Lord of lords who's come to make us our own, his own, that we might know him and enjoy him and worship him, that we might be his and that he might be ours. And how can we not erupt in praise because of that? Let me pray and ask that you help us do that. Well, God, I thank you that you love these people so much so that you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your son, the greatest gift. And Lord, you know that we forget you. 
to our own detriment, to your dishonor. And God, I pray that your spirit would pursue us. That we would not neglect regularly coming to worship, but when we're here, we would realize that the reason you're calling us in your worship is to enjoy you and to exalt you in response. Help us to spend our lives doing that, enjoying you and and exalting you. God, make us effective witnesses that we might invite others to enjoy you and exalt you. We do that even this week, even through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.